0: Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast. I'm Emmanuel Vaughn-Lee, executive editor of Emergence Magazine. In each issue, we feature in-depth interviews, narrated essays, and stories, exploring the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Bill Porter, famously known as Red Pine, is a translator of Chinese texts and an author, his translated works include the Diamond Sutra and the Heart Sutra, and his books include Zen Baggage and the Road to Heaven, Encounters with Chinese Hermits. In this interview with staff writer Chelsea Steinauer-Scudder, Bill Porter reflects on the hermit tradition in China and the years he spent meeting hermits still carrying on this ancient tradition. Chelsea spoke to him about his encounters and conversations with hermits, and explores his long history with the great Zen and Taoist poets of Chinese history, and why their words remain relevant today.
1: Well, it is great to be here with you, Bill. You've written numerous travelogues and accounts of your experiences in China using your given name, Bill Porter, but a lot of people actually know you by the name Red Pine name you use translating Chinese texts and poetry, and I wonder if we could just begin with hearing how you chose that name and why you use it.
2: Red Pine is a a name I started using when I moved out of the monastery in Taiwan, where I'd been living in these two different monasteries for almost four years, where I was Victorious Cloud, and when I moved out of the monastery, I needed a new name. I couldn't use Victoria's Cloud on the Street." Just before I left the monastery, the abbot had given me the poems of Cold Mountain. Um, with some, I needed pirated, pirated Burton Watson's English translations of one third of them. So I had actually started looking at at the poems and started translating them because I could. I, I discovered that translating is a great way to learn a language. Is it, you? You can read something in Chinese and think you understand it, but if you try to translate it, you really discover areas that you don't really know that well and so you work hard to get a better understanding so so i was doing that and uh moved to this farming village and on this mountain outside of taipei and i'd have to support myself in the monastery i didn't need any money that they just took care of me and so i needed to teach english it's the first thing you do in taiwan to make money as you as a foreigner so every monday Wednesday, Friday night, 6 to 8, I would teach English conversation, but I had to take a bus to come down to the mountain to do that. So one day on the bus, the bus stopped at this big billboard advertising black pine cola. And I said, that's it. That's the name. But black is a Japanese color. Red is the Chinese color. So I started using the name red pine. And um, a couple months later, I was doing some reading and I discovered the first great Taoist in Chinese history was Master Red Pine. He was the Rain Master of the Yellow Emperor. So I was really surprised. It's a real name. I mean, you know, and it also began to explain to me this connection that I feel as a translator. As a translator, I don't, I don't know how other people do it because I learned all this on my own. So the way I do it, sort of, I've, I sort of become a shaman. I sort of, I find a, a, a no man's land between me and uh, Coal Mountain, say. Um, and so Red Pine sort of, I began to realize, I also when, I was, when I'm working on things, the weirdest things happen. I'll be looking for some information and I'll just open a book and there will be the information I'm looking for, right staring me in the face. It happens over and over. So I just assume that I'm getting help from Master Red Pine. And so my translations are indebted to Master Red Pine. So that's why I've, been, I've continued to use that name, um, because I, it explains uh, to me where a lot of what I'm getting is coming from.
1: Well, in reading Red Pine's translations and Bill Porter's travel logs and stories, you get such an incredible sense of, a journey really through time and across cultures. And I wonder if we could just go back to the beginning and hear how you came to China in the first place and what you were looking for that brought you there.
2: Well, I was getting a degree in anthropology from Santa Barbara in 1970. And I didn't want to go out into the world and work. So I thought I would go to grad school. And so I thought I would apply to Columbia University because they had a wonderful department. Margaret Mead, Ruth Benedict, a lot of great anthropologists were teaching at Columbia in the 70s. So I applied to Columbia, but I, I didn't have any money. I was getting, a, a, I think it was a little bit less than $100 a month from the GI Bill because I'd been in the Army. Um, anyway, I was checking all the financial aid, and there was a, oh a language fellowship available. But it had to be a rare language for a Westerner in 1970. And I just read a book called The Way of Zen by Alan Watts. And it had these Chinese characters in it. And I thought it made wonderful sense. It dovetailed with a lot of the things I'd been exploring from a very different perspective. Um, um, I'd been taking classes in statistics, uh, computer programming, um, finite mathematics, But suddenly, Zen just really resonated with me. So on the form, I just wrote in the word Chinese. I actually, you know, I had no interest in Chinese or China or anything. I just, I needed to write something. And I moved on to the next box and checked a couple more. And anyway, they gave me a four-year fellowship to study Chinese at Columbia. And so I went there and I felt like a fraud because, again, of my total lack of enthusiasm, much less interest uh, for, for the subject. And so I started studying Chinese at Columbia along with anthropology and, um, I met a, a Chinese monk in Chinatown who, who invited me to come to his place and, and he taught me how to meditate. And, uh, every weekend or two, I'd go out to his place up the Hudson and, uh, and spend a couple of days just at his little place there. And, and of course, of doing this, I lost all interest in anthropology and, um, got more and more interested in Buddhist practice as a personal experience, not so much as the acquisition of knowledge. And so uh, I realized I had to solve this dilemma. And so after two years, I quit. I gave them back the fellowship so they could give the other two years to someone else. And one of my classmates at Columbia had been to Taiwan. And he gave me the address of a monastery he had visited. And I wrote them and they said, come on over. I mean, monasteries aren't cut out for everybody. But for me, it was like heaven. It was no responsibilities whatsoever. I let the outside world just disappear. Nothing mattered. All I had to do, I got just get up at, in the morning and, and go to sleep at night and fill the day with whatever I, whatever I wanted to do. I was a a foreigner, so they didn't know what to do with me. They'd never had a foreigner before. So I wasn't required to do anything. And when I would actually ask to do something, they wouldn't let me (laughs) Uh, like sweep up or clean up or whatever. So I meditated a lot and I started reading a lot. And that's when I started learning how to translate it because I I decided translation was a great way to improve my Chinese. And so by the time I really got into it, that's when the abbot said, you know, you should be a monk if you're going to continue staying here. And I I left. So I moved up to this farming village uh, that my sponsor had told me about. It's at the very top of this, near the top of this mountain outside of Taipei. It's it's now part of a national park, but a very bucolic place, just nothing but farmers raising cabbages and calla lilies.
1: And you were translating during that time? I was and-
2: translating Cold Mountain. And, mm-hmm. um, and then I had an edition of Cold Mountain's poetry uh, from the Qing dynasty that I bought in Taipei, in addition to the one the abbot gave me, but this was a better one. And after Cold Mound's poems, there was another, another poet named Stonehouse. And I, I liked his poetry even better. And so I started translating his poetry. Um, and I also published an edition of, of, of his, his poems. And, um, and then I, I got married. Uh, she taught me how to read, uh, some philosophical texts of Zhuangzi, you know, Laozi, these commentaries, um, uh, but then I had to get a job. I mean, teaching English, I was making maybe three hundred a month, so I needed a, a real job. And, and so that's, I so I stopped translating, and then I was just, you know, working at this radio station, the old U.S. Army radio station that was that became a nonprofit when we recognized China, and so I worked there, uh, you know, for a few years, and uh, um, at, at a certain point, I applied to the Guggenheim Foundation. Because I thought these people like Cold Mountain and Stonehouse were there really are there really people like that were there really, really people like that or is this just a fabrication? Um, so I applied to the Guggenheim Foundation to go to China to find hermits, and I was interviewing the son of the richest man in Taiwan. It's one of my weekly uh, interviews. His name is Winston Wong, and he was the, the he. Owned the, the world's largest plastics company, Formosa Plastics, and so uh, I asked him at the end of the interview. I said, "So, uh, did you ever read the ever ever see the movie The Graduate?" Uh, and he said, "Yeah." He said, "So, what would you tell a graduate?" I was ex- you know expecting plastics, on plastics. He said, without thinking, he said, "I would tell him to follow the Dow." He was he was sincere about that. In fact. He Turned out to have a lot of interest in Taoism. Um, And so I told them, well, that's interesting because, you know, this might be my last interview because I've applied to China, uh, to the Guggenheim Foundation to go find hermits in China. um, And I should get the letter any day now from them. He says, well, if they don't give you the money, I will. And so, of course, they didn't, and he did. And so I went off to China, quit the job at the radio station, and uh, went to China to find hermits, knowing, not knowing where the hell am I going to find a hermit. You know, there's China's a big country and lots of mountains, and I didn't know what to do. So I just happened to be went go to Beijing, and uh, I met this monk who said he thought he'd heard of some hermits still living in the mountains south of Xi'an. So that's where I went.
1: Why did you think in the first place that they might still exist?
2: I didn't think. I wondered if they did. I didn't know. In fact, the last interview I did in Taiwan was with uh, Ma Ying-jeou, the president of Taiwan. I said, you know, I'm, this is my last interview because I'm going to go to China to find hermits. And he says, hermits? They don't even have any real monks in China, much less hermits. He thought that was, of course, of course, that's the party line. I didn't know where, they were, where I was going to find hermits. I was just naturally hoping I'd find some. And so... And I didn't know, you know, he had said these mountains south of Xi'an were called the Jungnan Mountains. Well, it turns out the Jungnan Mountains aren't a mountain; they're a mountain range, and it's a two hundred kilometer long range east-west. So I just went south twenty kilometers from from some Xi'an. I I hired a taxi driver. Um, I said, "Take take me and my friend, a photographer, to the, the foot of the mountain, and come back in two days." And we just hiked off into the into the mountains. But within about two hours, we're sitting down in this little dirt temple and writing down hermit addresses. because once it turns out the, the, there aren't many hermit mountains in China, but there are mountains that are hermit mountains. And if you're on a hermit mountain, then there are lots of hermits.:
1: What makes a hermit mountain?
2: Uh, what pom- are they looking for? Well, they need deadfall, uh, you know, firewood. Hermits don't cut down trees. They, they they survive on picking up dead stuff and water. So you need some firewood. You need some water. And, well, you got to grow some food. But because you're hermits, you can't compete with farmers. Farmers are going to take any flat land. So you got to live pretty high up. Usually it's about, you know, we'll commute about an hour to a job. And farmers will commute an hour to a field. So you've got to live beyond the farmer commute. So, which means usually take a road as far as it'll go and walk two hours, and then you're in hermit country. But 99% of all mountains in China have no hermits whatsoever. But there are certain mountains that that over time have been, uh, they've become what I'd call graduate institutes for hermits. And because the mountains south of Xi'an, Xi'an was the ancient capital of Chang'an, so during the Tang Dynasty and other dynasties, that was the center of politics and, and money and everything else. And so these mountains just south of, of town were very convenient places for people to, to practice uh, these traditions. Also, this is where Chinese civilization began. And it turns out the hermit tradition goes back to almost Neolithic times. Well this is just like in in the west among uh the American uh Native American tribes there's always been individuals who leave the tribe for periods of time to have visions to 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 have some sort of insight into how to help their 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 tribe. And so that's what these people were doing back in around 5000 BC in China. And so uh eventually Taoism develops from that. Taoism I always thought of a is uh, housebroken shamanism, and around the time civilization begins, these Taoists uh, then start staying in town more, but they're still going off to the mountains being hermits. So, so the mountains south of the, of this of this the, these political centers were the mo- the the most natural places to develop these hermit mountains, and so the Jungnan Mountains were great because they're so huge and they go two hundred kilometers east to west and a hundred kilometers north to south. So. Lots of, lots of room for hermits. So I just happened to stumble into hermit heaven. And after we had, me and my, my photographer friend, Steve Johnson, we'd found hermits in the Jungnan Mountains. We went to other places in China too and found them, but nothing like the mountain south of Xi'an. So I really hadn't planned on writing a book. I just wanted to find out if there were hermits. But having met them, I was so impressed and taken with them because they had absolutely nothing. And yet, they're the happiest people I've ever met. I've never met happier people, and they were doing what they wanted to do, um, which is very rare in China, especially living that lifestyle. They weren't interested in money or wealth or fame or, or or relationships either. They're all all celibate, um, whether whether they're Taoists or, or or Buddhists. Um, so I had to go back. So I I did. I went back and started interviewing them more professionally. You know, with a tape recorder. And, uh, my friend Steve would take photographs and, and then I went back a third time and, you know, did more photographs, more interviews, and then came back and, and wrote a book.
1: So how did encountering this living tradition of hermits affect you and what felt important about sharing that story in your book and, and since?
2: Because it made it real that it wasn't just a, a literary fiction, um, and often for some people, it turns out it was. For example, during the Tang Dynasty, there was an expression called the Jungnan shortcut. These mountains south of Xi'an were called the Jungnan Mountains. And if you wanted to be official, usually you had to take exams. And some people just couldn't pass the exams. But hermits, it turns out hermits are the most respected people in China. They always have been. And so these people who couldn't pass the exams would sometimes go build a hut in the Jungnan mountains and wait to be noticed. And then they would be invited to come to court to serve as officials because, of course, anybody living this lifestyle must be honest and free of of worldly attractions. So this is the attitude people had to these sort of people. Uh, Anyway, uh, when I finally met people who actually practice this, it made a really deep impression on me because it not only proved its existence in the past, but also under conditions that are not very conducive to spiritual practice in China. Uh, They survived the cultural revolution somehow, um, and they continue to to survive the distractions of of, um, what's going on in China today, a modern economy. Um, about seven or eight years ago, there was a Chinese film company that asked me to go back up into the same mountains, uh, and they would film me uh, interviewing hermits in the same area. Um, and the head of the film crew had read my book, and when I did my interviews in the Jungnan Mountains, I estimated there were around two hundred hermits in the Jungnan Mountains south of Xi'an. And This is based on on my. Interviews, but also hermits just telling me their assessment of of how many people were in this area. Uh, Well, the head of the film crew had used my book and had personally gone into the same area and filmed over 600. So the hermit population had increased by three times. And when I had gone into the mountains, the hermits were almost all uneducated. Very seldom would you get a, a high school graduate. These were people who were devoted to their practice. Which of course is even more impressive for a person like me to see people so devoted to to they they made me feel like I was a, a slackard. And that's that's in a sense why I wrote that book. I wanted to inspire Westerners in their practice. Say, so see, that these people have been able to survive the conditions that they're that that have been going on in China and yet they're they're doing their practice so um, you guys should work a little harder. <laughs> that's, that was really my idea. And also it made me want to do that in my own life too. So that's what, what inspired me to, to write that book. And, um, that was the effect it had on me. And it just continued me, continued to inspire me in, into, uh, doing Buddhist texts. Um, because I, I want to, uh, transmit what I can to the extent I understand things. Um, to Westerners, which is odd. I mean, because that was always my t- intent, but it turns out my following, to the extent I have a following, it's not in America. It's in China. Um, it's funny. Uh, I think that book about Hermits Road to Heaven, it's been out since 93. So what is that? That's uh, 25 years. I think it, maybe it sold 40,000 copies. Well, in China it sold a half a million in translation.
1: So there's a real interest again maybe in what the, these hermits the Chi- have to The offer. Chinese
2: are intensely interested now in not just their own culture, but alternatives to what's going on in their own culture. That is they're they're they're, they're trying to rediscover their roots and um, sometimes it's easier to hear about that and learn about it from an outsider. Someone who doesn't have an axe to grind, and someone who also who speaks with a different kind of voice. Because I speak differently than a Chinese would. I'm not deferential. I don't couch everything, and I don't. I'm not afraid to honestly portray uh, the the facts of a of a of a situation. Whereas the Chinese would be a little sensitive about offending somebody. Um, not that I give offense, but uh,
1: I wonder if you could speak a little bit to what comes through in this poetry and what seems to be true for the hermits is the real importance of solitude and of connection to the mountain itself. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that relationship to place.
2: Well, hermits have always had to live where nobody else wants to live. Um, I wouldn't say so much that the hermit idolizes or, or puts a, uh, wild nature on a pedestal it's just that they need a place to live and of course solitude is an important aspect of of any spiritual practice so living in a city is not ideal but the the Chinese have a a saying they say the little hermit lives in the mountains the great hermit lives in town whenever they tell me this though I say but you can't be a Big hermit, unless you've been a little hermit. Once you once you develop that practice in the mountains, you can bring that solitude down the mountain with you. But to begin it, you've got to you've got to have quiet um, before you become quiet. So these hermits have, choose uh, mountains where you know uh, typically that that are close enough to a city where there's some. In her intercourse that is because a hermit can't support themselves completely they're going to need a little help so they they choose uh mountains near near uh traditional centers of chinese culture that's where i've i've found most of the hermit mountains um and again they have to rely on trees that die and so every every hermit sort of needs a territory like a wild animal um, I estimate it's 15 minutes. That's sort of the hermit buffer, the hermit territory, about 15 minutes. If you're in a, in a mountain area, then every 15 minutes, you're going to meet a hermit if it's a hermit mountain, um, because they need a room to gather with that wild, uh, the, the detritus, uh, for, for, for burning for fuel, also, uh, wild plants. And then of course, water, uh, um. And, and and of course solitude, because it's not like they ha- they make much noise, but fifteen minutes does help when you're in the mountains. To you don't hear anybody, you know, uh, talking fifteen minutes away. So they they uh, they live in the mountains because that's simply uh, the best place to go to find solitude.
1: I wonder if you would read a poem for us.
2: Ida Looking for a refuge? Cold mountain will keep you safe. A faint wind stirs dark pines. Come closer, the sound gets better. Below them sits a gray-haired man chanting Taoist texts. Ten years, unable to return, he forgot the way he came. You know that's... That's the poem. Could you say a little more about Cold Mountain and his poetry? Um, He's probably the he is easily the first significant Buddhist poet in China. Um, Nobody knows anything about him, really. Just called himself Cold Mountain, Um, but because he was educated, uh, his poetry was is. Is really good, but because he's a Buddhist, he's writing stuff about Buddhism from a Buddhist perspective. I don't think there's anybody who admires his poetry in China uh, from a poetic as in terms of poetry. He's never been a highly respected poet, but people love his poetry. It's uh, because you understand it, and so um, I'm, I'm glad I began with Cold Mountain. And the next poet, Stonehouse, even more so. His poetry was, uh, was uh, again, better poetry than Cole Mountain's. Uh, but also had that that Buddhist clarity that he has a purpose in in the poems. The poems are meant to to uh, put people in a, a a place where they can see things from a new perspective, and not to impress with literary technique. So that's what I liked about Cole Mountain. And it's like he was my first girlfriend. So I'll always have a special place for Cole Mountain in my heart.
1: You speak really beautifully. I've heard you speak about the relationship to these poets as sort of being like a dance.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, Any any that yeah. I've got it about 15, when was it, around 13, 14 years ago, I was invited to a, a conference on Chinese poetry at a college in Boston called Simmons. I think that was the name of Simmons College, and they asked me to to give a talk or a, a write a paper about translation, and I had never ever thought about what I do. You know, you do something and you don't know how you do it. So that's when I I th- I thought, well, what what am I doing? And that's when I realized the the metaphor I, I came up with was this dance metaphor. Um, I see this uh, this beautiful. The, this woman dancing on a dance floor and her dance is just just so entrancing I want to dance with her but I'm deaf I don't hear the music I just see the results of her hearing the music and so I go on the dance floor and I try to dance with her so I can't put my I obviously I can't dance across the room that does that's not very rewarding and and I also, I can't put my English feet on top of her Chinese feet to emulate her dance, which is what a lot of people think translation is. You know, it's accurate, literal, but it kills the dance. And so, but you have to dance close enough to pick up the energy, especially when you're deaf and you're not hearing where this stuff is coming from. Um, And so that to me is what translation is is about for me, for Chinese poetry. And so every day... I go up on the dance floor to dance with that same dance. I'm going to do it differently. It's, and there's good days and bad days. Um, you know, it could always be better and, and will always be different every time I go up on the dance floor. But I discovered that's what I like to do. I like to translate. Uh, people ask me, well, don't you write poetry too? I said, I would, I would never have the chutzpah to get on the dance floor by myself. Because I don't hear any music. But I've gotten to really, uh, what shall I say, um, not just adept, but I'm really attracted to the feeling of dancing with somebody else. I would never dance alone. but uh, So that's what I do. I translate. I, you know, dance with people.
1: And you, in this book, Finding Them Gone, you also, it seems like there's an importance to going to these places where these poets have lived and... Written and...
2: I like to do that. It's, it's my way of, of paying respects. And well, and also it's just the... the what shall I say? The, the privilege of being able to do that. Because normally if you read Shakespeare, you don't think of me necessarily going to England and, and going to places where Shakespeare lived. But there I am in, in China or in Taiwan anyway, and and I have the opportunity to go visit these places... Because the Chinese know where these people lived. They know where their graves are. They know where their houses used to be. Um, and so I, I, I like going to places where they wrote, where they lived and wrote just to, to pay my respects and to, and to see things. Because when you're translating, adjectives are really important. And when... If you've been to the place, you get a better sense of, of, of who's kidding who. Uh, poets exaggerate. Um, a lot, for example, one of the great landscape poets, perhaps one of the, the greatest, is Wang Wei. But you go to some of the places, you know, where Wang Wei's written his poems, and he's talking about soaring peaks, and, and there's no peaks in, in sight. Um, but just going to a place, you get a sense for vegetation, the light, uh, the landscape. The water, things like that and, and plus There's just something in the air About going to a place That where you, uh, you You've admired these The poems that were written here Even if it was a thousand years ago And just going there um, it's funny, you know A lot of the places I, I went in this book Were in the countryside uh, Most of them were in the countryside Some, Sometimes it uh, It takes farmers to help me find these places And so I'll be sitting there reading, you know, I'll get out my little book that I I always have some poems with me. So after I set the, I always bring whiskey with me because Chinese poets love to drink, um, but they've never had good whiskey, bourbon, because they had no corn. So I take the best corn whiskey you can buy in America and and set out some cups uh, on on their grave and or where they used to live, and then I uh, take out their poems and I start reading them. And if there's any farmers standing around, they join me. It's because the people who live there have memorized the poems—not all the poems, obviously—but the highlights. So uh, often, I'm—it's—it's I'm, I'm, it's just remarkable. I'll be in the countryside, and this is there'll be a farmer or two sitting around, and 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 they haven't been to high school, and yet they can. They know that poem, and so once they've heard me begin a few lines, they'll jump in. Um, I, I, I'm always impressed with that. How much poetry is a part of the Chinese uh, culture, and the Chinese mind, and there's the respect for it. I don't think poetry in the West will ever have the respect it has in China.
1: What's at stake, both in China and potentially even in the West, for this? resurgence and interest, perhaps, in this hermit culture and tradition, and but in the face of this very materialistic, wealthy, sort of mainstream
2: culture? Well, when I said, you know, the, the hermit population in the Jonah Mountains has tripled in the last 20 years or so, um, most of the hermits today have uh, at least high school degrees and usually college degrees. Lots of professionals What you're seeing now is a highly educated person uh, disaffected with material wealth that is being generated in China. So you're getting uh, a very different kind of hermits. These aren't people who are attracted out of just pure devotion, but these are people who are turning their backs and turning away from what they're seeing happening in, in their country. And that's, of course, it can be a good thing and a, a bad thing. It all depends on how the government uh, uh, views it. One odd thing, not an odd thing, but one thing to keep in mind is every hermit in China is living there illegally. They're all living on government land. And think about that if that happened in America. If you were living on Forest Service land, how long would that happen? As soon as they see your smoke, you're gone. But these people have been living there for thousands of years, and the government is not about to touch them because they are so highly respected. I'll, I'll, the, la- the most famous hermit, I—no, one of the three or four famous hermits I've met in the mountains, the last time I saw her alive, there were six Communist Party officials in her hut. They had heard about her and wanted to know what they could do to help her. So the, the, the attitude people have towards this level of spiritual practice is very special Because these people are special. They're not, again, they're not misanthropes. They're important members of society, and they're still highly respected in China.
1: Could you read a couple more
2: poems for us? Okay. Well, this is a a poem by Stonehouse. Wrote this poem, I guess it would have been around, oh, maybe 1330, 1340. (laughs) Woban chan song, bu hui chan. Gansu Yi Tian I was a Zen monk who didn't know Zen, so I chose the woods for the years I had left, a robe made of patches over my body, a belt of bamboo around my waist, mountains and streams explain Bodhidharma's meaning, flower smiles and bird songs, Reveal the hidden key. Sometimes I sit on a flat-topped rock after midnight, cloudless nights, when the moon fills the sky. And you know, that flat rock is still there. You've been to it. Yeah, I've been to that rock. I've sat on that rock. Um, that's the wonderful thing about, about China is, is that they, they know where these places are. And they have a long history, so you you can always find something where you can go and you can connect with the past. Um, and of course, of course, for Buddhists, there is no time. Just going to the sitting on that rock uh, just gives gives you gives me a sense of sitting with with, with stone house. A
1: so, poem from Cold Mountain.
2: From Cold Mountain. Which which one? Uh this two eighty two. Oh. Gau From a lofty mountain peak, the view extends forever. I sit here, unknown, the lone moon lights cold spring. In the spring there is no moon, the moon is in the sky. I sing the single song, a song in which there is no zen.
0: Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Kalliopea Foundation. Our original essays, in-depth interviews, films, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Our theme music is composed by H. Scott Salinas. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. To subscribe to our newsletter and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.com dot org.